0: Welcome to Below the Line, a podcast by the Northwestern University Law Review. I'm Emily Rusnowski. And I'm Kelsey Cheposky. And we're both editors of the Northwestern University Law Review Online.
1: Today, we're talking to Professor Cortland Roser jones a professor at the University of Wisconsin, about her article in Volume 112, Issue 4 of the Law Review. Her article is called Reconciling Agency Fee Doctrine, the First Amendment, and the Modern Public Sector Union.
0: Professor Roser Jones discusses agency fees for public sector unions, Abood v. Detroit Board of Education, and Janus v. Me, the agency fee case currently being considered by the Supreme Court.
1: She joined us a few days after attending the Janus oral argument. We hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, we are excited to
0: welcome Professor Cortland Roser-Jones, who is currently a William H. Hastie Fellow at the University of Wisconsin Law School, and she will soon be starting a new position at the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. We're here to discuss her article in Volume 112, Issue 4 of the Northwestern University Law Review. It's called Reconciling Agency Fee Doctrine, the First Amendment, and the Modern Public Sector Union. Thanks for being with us, Professor. Thank you for having me, Emily. So we want to start with a little background um, about your interest in this area. How did you become interested in labor law and agency fee doctrine? Sure. Yeah, so I come from... uh, a big
2: labor state next door uh, in Wisconsin, and uh, have been before I came to academia was a labor lawyer, which are not there are not too many of us left, but there are a few uh, in states like Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, where I came before that. Um, and I first became interested in this doctrine, oh, probably uh, shortly after the recession when we started to notice these right to work states and right to work legislations that were coming. Uh, about I wanted to know what they were. I wanted to know uh, who's not letting people work is what I really (laughs) (laughs) thought. And I've since found out that it's a little bit more detailed than that. Uh, uh, But it has since become a very hot issue, and I'm excited to vet other people and that the court is uh, taking it up, but also uh, concerned because it has some some, some pretty big implications for the labor movement and uh, labor as we know it.
1: Excellent. So you know, we'll get to some of those implications later, but we'd like to transition to the substance of your article. Sure. So can you just tell us a little bit about Abood and the compromise that the court struck in that case?
2: Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, Abood is the case that is being uh, decided right now uh, with Janice Viafsny, which was argued uh, this past Monday. Uh, the issue in that case is whether we're going to overrule Abood, and Abood is a 40-year precedent. Um v Detroit Board of Education. It is the case that struck this compromise in agency fees. Uh, What agency fees are, and you'll sometimes hear me refer to them as fair share fees, because I prefer that uh, term, agency fees are basically the cost that a non-union member employee pays uh, to a union for being represented by that union. So you don't have to join the union, but if you are represented in a bargaining unit or in in an employee unit, uh, you pay for the collective bargaining and the contract-related services. It's usually about 75% of what a full union dues would be, um, but not insignificant. I think Mark Janice, the uh, plaintiff who was uh, recently the lead plaintiff in this case, paid about $45 every uh, every paycheck. So not an insignificant amount, but also not an insignificant benefit. Right? You're also you're not just getting uh, collective bargaining representation, uh, but you're also getting contract grievances. So if you know, if you're terminated, you get the full benefit of having the union represent you in any kind of grievance procedure. Uh, so these agency fees, um, that ABUD first handled in the public sector, uh, they drew the same compromise that was in the, uh, was in the private sector, which is agency fee payers. So these are non-members. They're gonna pay for the contract and collective bargaining-related services, but if you choose not to be a member of the union, you don't have to pay for any of these political or ideological activities that a union might be engaged in. And um, that's the compromise of Boudreaux 40 years ago. Um, It is now, uh, it has since been uh, called into question a little bit as the modern First Amendment um, has kind of come into its own. And this this court decided to take up the issue of whether to
0: overturn it this term. Professor, can you give us a little more background about the Janus case?
2: Yeah, uh, so the Janus case uh, is from Illinois. Mark Janice is a social worker at the Illinois uh, Department of Health and Family Services. Uh, he wrote actually an interesting op-ed at the Chicago Tribune a couple years back when he first started his litigation. Uh, this litigation was initially brought by actually Governor uh, Bruce Rauner. Uh, he had issued an executive order that basically told the states to stop collecting these agency fees. Um, the court later said that he didn't have standing, uh, so he is not named in this uh, in this litigation anymore. But he was there at the Janus argument. Um, fortunately, though, when it was, or er, fortunately for him and for the for the, uh, litigate, for the litigation is uh, Mark Janus joined the litigation. He is an Illinois employee. And his argument is that the union doesn't speak for him. He does, you know, he does not want to give money to the union specifically. He doesn't agree with some of the political decisions, some of the political uh, candidates that the union has endorsed in the past. And he uh he thinks that he should uh be
0: that he should get to choose whether or not to support the union. So in your article, you you talk about how unions and public sector unions specifically have really changed since a booed. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, uh, and there was some indication uh to this that, that I appreciated in the art in the argument just this past Monday, and that looking at when they decided a boo, this was 40 years ago, uh It seemed to be a pretty good compromise for what they had, which were these relatively new public sector uh, collective bargaining statutes. Um, Abood was decided in the 70s. We had our first collective bargaining statue ever uh, was from Wisconsin, and that was the late 1950s. In the 60s, a couple states uh, also adopt one, but really it was the 70s when you saw public sector unionism come into its own. Um, And you know, where where do you go when you start to really figure out what a new statute is going to look at? They went straight to the private sector, which had had a relatively successful track history in collective bargaining since the Wagner Act in the 30s. And they essentially adopted very, very similar statutes to the NLRA. Um, but that has not been the case in the past 40 years. They still st- are generally um, adopt a lot of the same language. But what we've seen in states is that they've been incredibly creative in terms of what of responding to what their constituents see as being a strong collective bargaining unit. What do I want within the scope of collective bargaining for my public sector employees to have? Some public sector employees have, you know, more collective bargaining terms or, you know, than others. Um, in terms of the agency fee issues, some states are right to work, right? 27 states have decided it's not in their best interest to have any kind of compelled agency fee scheme. Um, so it's all voluntary in those states. So it's been very interesting and very much a case of state legislators being the expertise in this, because we really haven't seen a lot of changes in the Wagner Act. I mean, the NLRA is what it is. It could probably use some changes, but it's it's been pretty um, ossified for the past you know, 20, 30 years. But we have seen states, they are enacting and making changes um, at dramatic levels, and I think it has been interesting to really be able to see when I come to Illinois, it is such a different labor environment than when I drive to Wisconsin, than when I go back home to Pennsylvania. If, I'm, if I go down south, it's just incredibly different. Depending on what state you are in, um, what the legislature has decided is the best scheme for handling collective bargaining.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about um, the standard that you advocate for in your article?
2: Yeah. Um this standard is a, is, is different. I think it is it, it's logical in uh in what it is looking at is it is going back to campaign finance and how we look at contributions from a campaign finance perspective. Um if you go back to a bood. Um, they were citing campaign finance. Buckley v. Valeo was cited about a year before Baboud was decided, was the flagship Buckley v. Valeo, where we first started to see this link between money and speech. Um, In Buckley v. Valeo, they look at this link between money and speech, but they do so in such a way to recognize that while spending is expressive in some terms, it is not as expressive as pure political speech. Um, And in drawing that distinction, it gives us this closely tailored, um, narrower statute than the strict scrutiny that they've been applying in the court today, which is what you would apply to pure political speech. Um, This article is arguing that there is a difference between compelled speech and compelled subsidy of speech in terms of the kind of expressive notions that are behind it. And one of the reasons I like this statute is because I think it is is in a lot of ways turning back the clock. You know, it's looking at campaign finance is initially how we come to looking at political contributions. So it's turning back the clock, but it also um, gives a lot of credence to these states who have been incredibly creative. Um, Where do we look in terms of law where we give a lot of deference to states? Another place we go is in the political atmosphere. We let states... um, Really run their own elections and we give the de- we, we really defer to them and their expertise in that ways. And that's why you see very, states are very different, right? Um, in how they organize their elections. So it seems to also give a lot of credence to the states and who are doing these interesting things um, in their statutes.
0: So what about tell us about what the closely drawn standard is. Yeah, so the closely
2: drawn standard would be to draw agency fees. Right now. After a boot, in a case that really clarified a boot is a leonard, is the Leonard case that came about 14 years later. But what they basically decided was that they were having some practical problems, right? And how to draw this line between collective bargaining and contract-related activities in pub- and and you know, political activities. And this has really been the challenge to a boot, right? That, that uh, in the public sector, there are things that are traditionally collective bargaining topics like wages um, that can have an impact on policy, right, on the state budget. Um, Justice Roberts gives the uh, wouldn't accept the example of, in the past case, in the Friedrichs case, of mileage. You know, is mileage really a traditionally collective bargaining and wage issue? Well, if you take the definition that everything is political if it takes state resources from one thing to another, then actually it's not. You know, it can be political because $0.54 cents a mile instead of 53 means that that's more money going towards public employees as opposed to maybe other you know, roads or other areas of, of public allocations. Um, so the closely drawn standard is different than the germaneness standard, which is what we got from boot which is that we're going to allow agency fees for everything that is germane to collective bargaining and contract-related activities. Um, the court... Is not really much of a fan of germaneness. It's hard to define. It's vague, right? And when you're dealing with people's First Amendment issues, we don't really want to be vague, right? Uh, we want to closely. We want to. want to draw this. Um, we want to draw this better. Really, I can't think of a better way to say it. Is that germane is too hard to define, especially in this area where things can get very foggy very quickly. Uh, But what we have seen is in these statutes that are very specific, that say you can bargain over wages, you can bargain over time off, over tenure, that really gives us a model, and now all of a sudden when I go through my accounting of agency fees, I can look exactly at what the statutory duties say for me being the exclusive representative. And I can say, this is your exclusive representative by statute, who represents you in, these, in this scope of terms. So you're going to pay for everything as an agency fee payer that's within the statute. It's, it, it is a compromise. I mean, it is not going to cover the same kinds of costs as the Germanist statute does in a boot, um but it is also not going to get rid of agency fees entirely.
1: And now I know that the standard isn't as tight as, obviously, ex- uh, exacting scrutiny. Um, why do you think that that's necessary to, uh, you know, continue to uphold the labor unions and these collective bargaining fees? So one of the
2: problems that exacting and strict scrutiny has is it almost always it dooms the legislative model, right? Uh, and that seems to be a shame for me who studies these models and, you know, can go through and, and, and see why, you know, wh- what the public interest was um, behind passing certain statutes over another. Um, and the exacting scrutiny really doesn't leave a lot of room for deference for the court to say, um, you know, no, I actually think that there. are uh, there are legitimate reasons behind this, um, but, you know, we'll wait and see. I think exacting scrutiny, you know, we'll wait and see. I think the court, you know, one of the things that happened in Janus, which was really exciting, is they did start to discuss a statutory duty test. Um, it is not taken from the campaign finance model in terms of, as, as I would advocate it, but we are looking at, there has. you know, one of the things with boot. Is there so much of a reliance interest right now on what we have that um, either you know overturning it would have some pretty dramatic consequences? So is there something in between where we can still respect individual rights um, to free expression, but also preserve the union's collective right to to represent everyone efficiently and effectively?
1: So just kind of going off that in your article, you mentioned uh, large implications from you know overturning a bood. Um, And you also mentioned that your recommended standard might not please everyone. Um, Why do you still think that that's the best way forward? Uh,
2: Well, I think I I still think that, and I feel even stronger about it now after I saw the argument uh, this past week. I think I tend to fall on the side of, uh, I, th- I, I tend to think Justice Kagan is persuasive in some of the comments that she made during the argument in that when you look at the reliance issues, uh, the interests that are in here, um, you know, sh- she couldn't, and I can't, uh, but I, I would not have put it this eloquently, um, is that you re- she could not think of another case they've overturned where there's been this much reliance interest that would be involved. Um, what, we have 23 states, uh, District of Columbia, Puerto Rico. Uh, All of these statutes would be, you know, portions of these statutes would become unconstitutional. Thousands of contracts that impact millions of employees are going to change. Um, And uh, I think, you know, in deciding when to overturn a case that those, you know, that that's important. I mean, this is very much a structure that has worked um, and that you have to take that into account. Um, With that said, there are obviously some individual rights that... Are so important that we'll we'll base you know we'll throw we'll throw bad precedent to the wind. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure that I don't believe that the First Amendment interests here are strong enough to do so in this case. You know, if you don't if you don't want to if you disagree with the position the unions make and you are a you know and you're an agency fee payer, you are welcome to speak out against the union. You actually you get two shots at it, right? You can you can speak out and try to get a new union in, you know, you could try to decertify that union, or you can go right to your legislatures and say, this is how I want the law to change. Um, you are not necessarily um, blocked out of having your speech. You know, you, you can still have that opinion in, um, in terms of what you believe and what you say. You still are free to talk, to, to say whatever you want, really.
0: So let's talk about the elephant in the room in Janice, (laughs) Justice Gorsuch. (laughs) You just came from oral argument. He's kind of the unknown factor in this case because he was not on the court last year in Friedrichs. um, And he didn't ask any questions at oral argument. What do you make of that? (laughs) He he said nothing. He was a... almost definitely definitely
2: silent and really, uh, in really his ability, in his capacity to say nothing. Uh, Justice Gorsuch has not been known for sitting on the court and having or sitting on the bench and having nothing to say. Uh, so I <laughs> I think you're right. it is very much what a lot of us were waiting to hear and see there was nothing during the argument that gave me any, any indication that the justices that were on um, when this case, uh, was argued in 2016. So the eight justices that, you know, that heard that case have changed their mind. It sounds as, it sounds pretty much like we were, those uh, justices are still in the same camp. So we are, we're looking at Justice Gorsuch. A lot of us were really seeing if he would tip his hand at all. And he said nothing. <laughs> he said nothing. His, his name does not appear in the transcript. Um, and uh, that was, you know, I, I'm sure it was a, it was a strategy move on his yeah. part. I think he very much knows that he is the deciding vote in this. Uh, but what I would say is that, even though he was not uh, engaged in the argument in terms of asking questions, his presence very much changed the argument from what we had two years ago. Um, just being there, I think that the liberal justices have very much changed their strategy, and that two years ago, you saw more liberal justices arguing for the Abood Compromise as being that this line that we draw between collective bargaining and political activities can be drawn, in some, in some instances in the public sector. I heard very few of those in this argument. Um, now the argu- the liberal justices really harped on the reliance interest and the related stare decisis. That was really um, where they turned their attention. I also think um, that the liberal justices were uh, they mentioned these statutory duties? So it's similar to what my article talks about. When you when you look at these statutory duties, there is a dissent that Justice Scalia wrote in the Leonard decision in you know in the 1990s, um, and that dissent came up I think three times about how about that is a middle ground, and um, I can't help but think that that was directed right towards Justice Gorsuch as he sits there and says, you know, is, is anybody here a fan of Justice Scalia? You know, does anybody follow, you know, his jurisprudence at all? Anybody a mentee of Justice Scalia? Because he had this great dissent, and maybe we should look right there. So very much it changed. It also, um, there were points in the argument where it really felt like the attorneys were speaking straight to him, I mean, <laughs> especially at the end when it became clear that he uh, was not... Um, going to participate in asking questions. There were, there were closing points where they just looked right at him. <laughs> Which was, I mean, it, so, so it did feel different, I think. It, it was interesting to see, because I've, I've heard that from other people, that you know, one justice really changes, um, changes the entire court. Uh, and I'm not sure I believed it until I saw the difference, but you know, same issue, two years apart, one justice different, very, very different argument.
1: And, I mean, obviously, with you being there, what was the energy like?
2: Tense. (laughs) (laughs) At times. Uh, I mean, still obviously very cordial. Um, It's Supreme Court. uh, But there, you know, one could not ignore that there were quite a few protesters on both sides outside the court. So you're walking in through the Right to Work protesters, and then you're walking in, you know, through the pro-union protesters. Um, And then when you got in there, I think... um, Tense, you know, at several moments, it felt uh, like the justices just, you know, because at this point, I think that also, you know, a lot of the times, the oral argument is there to help educate and, uh, you know, uh, has served some other purposes. Now a lot of them are experts, and they've now become even more resolved in their ideas that they had two years ago. Uh, But there were moments, um, there were moments, you know, where, you know, Justice Kennedy felt to me like... uh, you know, he 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 almost strengthened strengthened his resolve um, in this being in you know an individual First Amendment right. Um, there were also some issues. You know that the the, the uh, Department of Justice is now taking a different position than it did two years ago with the change of the administration, and the court had a lot of questions and. Um, Let's see. I think Justice Kagan said it striked her as remarkable or, you know, amazing that this is the, act, this is the position of the government, you know. So um, there, there were moments like that where I think they really put the department, you know, on the spot and said, you know, how, you know, because the issue in, in those briefs were the uh, Department of Justice is now saying that everything collectively bargained for can be an issue of politics. Um, and that was, I think, that was hard for the justices to swallow, that even, you know, you know, wages, can. you know, that, that, that an employer would take that position because then you're litigating every workplace grievance, right, um, as a First Amendment issue. So it, there, there, were, there were moments.
0: <laughs> so based on attending oral argument, do you have a prediction about how the court's going to rule?
2: Yeah. Uh, I think um, before Monday I would have told you that I was pretty sure this was going to be five to four uh, in favor of Janus with Justice Toledo writing the majority opinion. I don't think anything during the argument uh, made me change my mind on that. In fact, I'm I'm more resolved to the fact that the four justices that were, or the four justices that found in favor of, you know, Friedrichs two years ago, will indeed find in favor of Janus again. I think we will see uh, a strong dissent, probably by Justice Kagan. Um, She wrote a dissent in Harris v. Quinn, which was a similar case but not exactly the same issue. uh, and I think she really came into her own. She really emerged during that argument as being um, probably the the leader on the liberal of the liberal justices in terms of looking at this issue. And um, I think we'll see a very very strong and I mean a lengthy dissent uh, from those four justices. But I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: so let's talk about practical impl- implications um, and impacts. Uh, if a Abood was overruled, I think it's 27 states are right-to-work states. What would be the practical implications of this ruling?
2: Yeah. Um, so I think I can give you the practice. What I see is, you know, one of the problems with Janus is we don't have a record. So some of these things are uh, a little bit speculative, but you're right that we do have these right-to-work states. So we can look at how unionization was impacted in those states when they became right-to-work. And we know that union rates go down and um, that unions become less influential when they don't have, you know, memberships in the 80s and the 90 percentiles, and that they uh, tend to see themselves become a lot less um, persuasive in bargaining and in other areas. Um, One of the moments that you can't deny, and Justice Kennedy hit it, and that I think um, the attorney for me also is it Fredericks. Um, he he was honest about it, is that the political implications. I uh, it, it, another a great tense moment in the article. He says, well, doesn't you know, isn't this going to make unions less impactful or you know less impact in their political activity? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, isn't that then the end of the case? which for me goes, oh, you know, like that, there we go. Well, there you go. Thank you, Justice Kennedy. There's where he is. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, but he, you know, it, it, you can't deny it. You cannot deny that when less people are paying into a union, that makes it less powerful, not at just at the bargaining table, but in terms of how these, you know, how money is allocated. If I'm now representing people in a grievance procedure, Um, who aren't paying anything into this, you know, this pool. It's essentially, you know, it's an insurance pool. Now my insurance pool is I've got less people paying into the pool. That leaves a lot less money for a union to, you know, engage in some of the political activities that they've always traditionally done. Um, Those avenues are going to be, a lot of them are going to be closed. You have seen unions um, in preparation for, I think, a, uh, a decision that is not favorable to them. In Janice, they have already started to cut staff. You know, you saw the SCIU do about a thirty percent, you know, cut in terms of who I can't employ these people anymore. I can't employ ground workers. I can't employ the grassroots organizers anymore. And so um, maybe, maybe Justice Sotomayor hit it. But she said, "So you want to get rid of unions?" And I mean, she said it, and he didn't answer it because you know you got to punt that one. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't. I, I. I optimistically, unions may evolve and become more responsive to their membership. There are some parts, there are some kinds of employment where, you know, I think, I always think of firefighters as the example where it really doesn't matter if they're right to work. Everybody, everybody joins the union, you know, you're, you're too close to your employees. People are, uh, so, so There will, there will be some places where it might not be as impactful as others. There will be places like you know, I use the example of, of Wisconsin because it's what I'm most familiar with, um, where you'll see dramatic decreases in unionization rates, and then you're going to see dramatic decreases in wages and employee benefits. And um, I, I think it is not, you know, it is not too much of a stretch to see that we'll see a rise in, you know, that the, the, the decrease in unionization leads to a rise in income inequality. Um, Do you-
1: Do you think that there could be an increase in strikes, for example, sort of a backlash?
2: Yeah. So I I had not necessarily thought that as much until after the argument. That's actually how uh, the AFSCME attorney who argued it really left the argument, which I thought was a very interesting move. I'm not sure it will strategically pay off for him because in a way it, it felt A little bit like a threat at times. Um, But I think he has, whether or not they're directly related, I mean he has a point that what West Virginia teachers at the time of Janus were striking, thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of them were striking, and West Virginia went right to work six months ago. You know, uh, I'm not necessarily sure I always saw agency fees as being the trade-off to not having a right to strike, but I think he hit something he he hit on something important, which is that if all of a sudden I, as the union, uh, have to get results for my workers right now, you know, like right now, you know, I need results or they're just going to not pay their dues tomorrow. It changes my strategy at the bargaining table. I'm less willing to give, um, to take certain concessions that maybe I would have been more willing to take, you know, beforehand. I'm less willing... To, you know, to take the chance of going back to my members and saying, hey, I know this is, you know, we didn't get that, that 1% wage increase, we promised you, but look at what it's going to do to your pension, or look at this and look at how it's going to, you know, pay off for the state in X, Y, Z ways. I've got a lot less wiggle room because it, it means that people can just stop paying tomorrow. So I think it will change the nature of how unions look at how they define their success. Um, I, I think it's got to be, it's not going to be you know, a marathon run anymore. It's gotta be more short-term. What has the union done for me lately? Or I'm, I'm gone, right? I mean, why, why would I pay? Um, so I think that is, I mean, it's, it, I think it's perfectly logical to assume that it has some, that it will change the nature of collective bargaining in the public sector. Whether we'll see more strikes, I, I'm not sure. Um, I don't think everyone's gonna strike tomorrow if uh, Janus comes out this way. But we saw, we'll definitely, I think we'll see more protests. Um, I think one of the positive things that has come out of a lot of the recent right to work um, and limitations to collective bargaining in the public sector is we've, for the first time in 20 years, seen very much like a public shift in terms of what, you know, we had many years where unions were seen as, you know, drains on the system and not necessarily – in the public interest, and now we see people out there protesting, saying, wait a minute, you know, this is not, um, this isn't right, you know, this isn't at all the, the proper characterization of what they're doing, so I mean, we could see, we could see things go the entire, you know, entirely the other way, this could completely reinvigorate a grassroots
0: movement for unions, and we could see um, legislatures have to respond to that. Absolutely. Well, Professor, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast. Thank you for having me. We encourage everyone to check out Professor Roser-Jones' article in Volume 112, Issue 4, and we will be anxiously awaiting the Janus decision. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh Thank you.
1: Today's episode of Below the Line was produced by Jonathan Byron and hosted by Kelsey Chetosky and Emily Rosnowski. Special thanks to Professor Portland
0: Roser-Jones, David
1: Edinger, Ken Zabler, Katrina Peters,
0: Anne Hudson, and Hilary Cheddar ames Thanks for listening.